about the uh, David's Tuesday test in a moment, but what about the September test? Can you remember what I said in September? Well, that would be a challenge at the beginning of September as well. We talked very briefly under two headings from 2 Corinthians 1 about comfort received and comfort shared. We saw how Jesus himself was comforted in his moment of need, his, his greatest need, by the Father's presence, and how he promised to always be with us, principally through uh, the Holy Spirit, our comforter, our helper, our strengthener, uh, that Jesus would always be with us. And also, we receive comfort through our union with Jesus Christ. We share in his sufferings, and we share in his comfort too. Peace now, and a promise of better things to come, life and glory. But this comfort that we receive is not a, an end in itself, it's a comfort to share with others as we get to know them, listening, it's a skill and art in itself, isn't it? Listening to them, and so we can provide them with relevant promises and encouragement from the word and in prayer. Just being there with other people is a comfort and helping them to know that the Lord is on sight, as it were, his comfort and grace with them. And just like the preacher, any preacher, the only way we can truly help other people, whether Christian or not, is pointing them to the Saviour. Well, the aim this afternoon is to go a little further, this time from 1 Thessalonians, and to sort of get across the idea that in this task of comforting one another or uh, word ministry, getting alongside one another, is not a one-sized-fits-all approach. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, just as well I didn't go into 1 Corinthians, wasn't it, after the master class this morning, but in 1 Thessalonians, Paul is writing to a relatively strong church. We see this in that passage that we read uh, just a moment ago in uh, chapter 1. So in verse 5, the gospel came not only in word, but in power, in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. Verse 6, the Thessalonians became followers of the Lord. Verse 7, they became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. And in verse 8, um, the word sounded forth. Uh, to, their faith toward God had gone out, so they did not need to say anything. Amazing. Very sort of uh, commending them, really. We could equally have gone to chapter 4, uh, verses 9 and 10. But concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. They're doing well, but we're not to stand still. We're to, to thrive and develop. Um, and of course, as they always say, don't they? If you're not going forward, you're going to roll backwards. So we need to go forward. In chapter 3, Timothy comes back with good news of their faith and love. So although there are areas that Paul does address in this letter, teaching and uh, things that he wants to just get across still to further their faith, Broadly speaking, we're talking about a, 
uh, a thriving or developing church, unlike perhaps the Corinthians or the Galatians. The letter concludes with a series of exhortations, various instructions um, uh, to respect their leaders. Uh, we read that at the beginning of our passage this evening there in, um, in chapter 5. Those that are over you in the Lord and admonish you, esteem them very highly in their love. And for Christian living, from verses 14 to 22. But this evening, we're going to just focus, focus on one verse. Verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. Now these pleas follow some teaching in the early part of chapter 5 on the Lord's return and are preceded immediately by the reason we should comfort each other. So in verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. So he's encouraging them on yet further. Now verse 14, our focus verse for this evening, is addressed to all believers. Okay, so I wanted to be certain that I was on um, sure ground here, that it really was to all believers and not just to ministers and elders. And so what did I do to confirm this? Well, Peter Masters always used to say, don't leave Matthew Paul on the shelf. He nails it every time. And sure enough, Matthew Paul reassures me that, the, uh, that Paul, the inspired writer here, is indeed talking to all believers. So he's addressing this verse to mainly uh, developing believers. But it's about the disorderly, the daunted, and the delicate amongst them. And different approaches, and the different approaches we're to take to each of those different categories or cases. So our title this afternoon is disorderly, daunted, or delicate. Disorderly, daunted, or delicate. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives some guidance for each of these different cases, which we've adapted ever so slightly so that we can pass that Tuesday test. To the disorderly, he hauls them over the coals. To the daunted, hearten them. And to the delicate, help them. And we're going to look briefly at each of these before coming to our conclusion. So first of all, the disorderly rendered the unruly or the idle in some translations. Strong's Concordance says literally out of order. And if I said you're out of order, you'd know what I meant, wouldn't you? And we still use that in the uh, vernacular or the colloquial now. There is a military aspect to this. You're out of line, insubordinate, refusing to observe guidelines. We went into 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3. Uh, Paul is writing there about the idle. And there is a sense of this here. Loafers, those who stop working. But equally, it's those that are following, not following God's instructions. Now, I don't know whether you ever... Uh, I, I, I love these things, these programs, these documentaries about people joining up in the army. I think it's because I'm sitting safely on my sofa while I'm watching them. But there was a documentary on the one of these things probably 10 or 15 years ago and it was along the lines of there were some sort of 
juvenile delinquents. That's a polite way of putting it, isn't it? Um, and they, the idea was that they'd give them a taste of national service. You hear that from time to time, don't you? That's what we need to do, bring back national service. And they gave some of these uh, youngsters, I think it was a couple of weeks, but I remember they were twin brothers, and they were a couple of ruffians that came in. And even these sergeant majors on the parade ground were struggling to get them to fall into line. So they're the type of characters we're talking about, the unruly, sinners, uh, whatever we might call them. We get the picture. So we're to correct them, warn them to change from the behavior that they're carrying on with, which is not according to scripture. What we're terming, haul over the coals. In other words, speak to them directly about the need for repentance. The question is always, will they turn? Now, this is a difficult thing, isn't it? We're in a church here. We're in polite company. Who are we to do this? We're all sinners. Isn't this something better done by the elders? Well, certainly it is something to be done by the elders. We can see that in verse 12. It's the same word used as admonish in verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize among you uh, those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem their work. So certainly it is something for ministers and elders to do. But remember, this verse is addressed to us all, to all believers. And it may be that we know the person better. We're aware of their situation, and we are better placed to have a quiet word in their shell-like. But of course, it's difficult, because we're going to get a reaction. There'll be resistance. Who wants to be told this? I remember we had a couple come to stay with us not long after we moved to Derbyshire. Nice couple. Um, it was quite an entertaining chap, quite an interesting chap. Lisa was more friendly with uh, his wife. They came up. Nice couple. We had a nice weekend. They had some issues communicating with one another. And um, I remember writing to this chap after uh, the weekend by email because I was a bit concerned for them. Well, we were quite friendly with them. We'd known them for over 10 years. I wasn't convinced, having had this weekend with them, that he was a believer. And I wrote, and I'd certainly recall writing to him in a uh, kindly and well-meaning spirit. And I wrote this email to him. The reaction I got was like I'd shaken hands with a rattlesnake. It really was venomous. And it sort of puts you off doing it, doesn't it? So it's a difficult thing to do. But we are instructed to do it. It's even made more difficult, I believe, in a church where seemingly there are no sinners. If the culture is more open, if people confess their sin and are more willing to do that and be uh, self-aware, if you like, there'd be less unconfessed sin to tackle in the first place. As well as it being difficult, there's another cautionary note. That human tendency to see the sin in someone else before we see it in our own lives. And uh, that uh, teaching of the Lord's about the log in our own eye and the speck in somebody else's eye. So we need to be very aware of the major sin, the sin that we may overlook or justify or minimize in our own lives before we ever get close to looking at somebody else's. 
If I've got a finger pointing at you, I've got four fingers pointing back at myself. But do it we must. If we go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and that passage about the idol, the loafers, right at the end of it, in, chapter, in verse 15 of um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. As a brother. So we are called to this. And there is a great benefit in blessing in doing so. James chapter 5 absolutely nails this. James chapter 5 and verse 19 and 20. Brethren, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. We could prevent an avalanche of sins. That's amazing, isn't it? Amazing. There are cautions. It's difficult. Look at yourself first. Do it carefully. Do it in love. But do it because you could save someone an avalanche of sin. And sin always damages the sinner and those that are sinned against. And it tarnishes God's glory too. So this is plain speaking. We're not comforting people here. They'll see you as a sentimental fool otherwise. And I say this reverently. They'll see God like that too. Imagine the arm round the shoulder approach with our juvenile delinquents, our ruffians that are giving the sergeant majors a hard time. No, Jesus commanded us to be wise as serpents in this case. And like him, we're to assess and discern different folk in different situations and not be gullible. This is a call to repentance, to turning back. We are to speak the truth in love, as Paul tells us in Ephesians. And just finally, on this particular point, some church traditions seem to focus solely on this. Everything is a blunt call to repent. I know of one fellowship, not a million miles from here. Not that close. You won't know which one it is. Uh, that always seems to be thundering out the gospel, thundering out uh, where we're going wrong and a call to repentance. It's quite impressive in a way, sort of shaking your seat a little bit. But like I say, this isn't a one-size-fits-all. Paul is quite clear here about different approaches for different cases. And even any call to repent should be constructive. And this final verse on this summarizes it really well. 2 Timothy 2, uh, 24 and 25. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth. Gently, in humility, correcting them. So if that's the disorderly, what about the daunted or the faint-hearted, the fearful, literally the little-souled? Faith is there, but it's small. Perhaps these are what Puritan Richard Sibbs describes as bruised reeds. He's taken his cue from Isaiah 42. Those being disciplined through trials. Or perhaps faintly burning wicks. 
doubting Christians struggling with assurance or anxiety. They feel all alone in a hostile, fallen world. We're to hearten the daunted. Here the call is not to repent, but an encouragement to take to heart the Lord's promise not to be afraid that he's with them, that they can trust him and take refuge in him. This is that comfort received, comfort shared dynamic that we talked about last time. The idea is to embody the Lord, come alongside people, and by what we say, how we say it, who we are, how we are, we're to embody the Lord's faithfulness uh, to them. We're not trying to give advice or fix them, but to be there, to listen, to encourage from the Word, and to pray and uh, thoughtfully, scripturally, about what we know and are getting to know about them. The idea is to get across um, that however we're feeling at any given time, the Lord is there. The Lord will help regardless of the quality of our faith, the littleness of our faith, because what's really important isn't the amount of our faith, but the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to remind each other that the Lord died for us whilst we were still sinners. In fact, it's the opposite of that, isn't it? Uh, I mean, he won't reject us now, but he, he actually pursues us. While we were still sinners, he pursued us. And we had a little exercise to do recently, Lisa and I, something that we're doing at the moment. I don't know whether you ever heard of, uh, heard of this. I'm sure some of you have. But Ernest Hemingway, the, the writer, was given uh, a challenge to write a story in six words. Now, I can't remember his story, but I was challenged to do the same. I then had another 300 words to explain my story. But the six words that I had were lonely and lost, God pursuing me. And that's it. That is the story of my life in six words. He didn't just pursue me. It's not God pursued me. He continues to do that. He never lets us go. He's with us the whole time. And so if God pursues us, you know, even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We go in the wrong way. He pursues us. He calls us back. How much more will he love us and be there for us when we actually actively turn to him? So for the daunted, the faint-hearted, the little-souled who turns to God, we can assure them that he'll be there. He'll be there, not far off, right there. The daunted need to know that Jesus sympathizes with their fearfulness and will deal tenderly with them. In this state, we worry that because other people might weary, that Jesus will too. But he sympathizes with our weakness and he intercedes for us. Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, verses 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted, as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And we thought about God's promises of his presence to us, but there might be others which help. 
And in a slightly different vein, in another recent study that we did around sin and grace, we were challenged to mine the scriptures for relevant, pertinent verses. Now, when I was given that challenge, you know, this is sort of looking at our besetting sin and, you know, maybe others are in the same situation, besetting sin that perhaps you, you worry or think that you're going to be taken to the grave with you. The challenge was to see what scripture had to say to you relevantly that would be useful, that would cut through that, uh, cut through that situation. It felt like hard work. But, you know, I came up with a big 11. There were 11. I could probably remember them all now. I won't do it now, but there were 11. And that verse 16 from Hebrews 4 was right in there. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. It's relevant here, isn't it? It's a great invitation and a promise. The point is we don't have to feel in control to step forth in, forward in faith. God will provide everything that we need in that moment. So we can encourage others in this way. And finally, we can hearten the daunted as the body of Christ here on earth. There was strength in Thessalonica amongst those believers. They were thriving, a developing church. And there is strength here at Castle Fields. But equally, that can feel daunting. I don't know whether I've told this story before. Forgive me if I have. But when Lisa and I came in off the street to uh, Baptist Union Church uh, 25 years ago or more, this is a true story, we sat in the back row of the balcony. We were almost out in the car park for at least the five, first five years that we were there because that's where we felt we belonged. And we need to get the balance right here. We can be a strong body of believers. That's encouraging. I love to come here because there are so many inspiring and strong believers. But it can be daunting as well. It can be that the daunted, faint-hearted believer thinks, I'm not like the others there. I don't feel sorted. I don't feel as shiny and clean as they do. And that's a reason to perhaps stay away. And it's another reason we should never be, I'm not saying that we are, we're not, we, it should never, we sh there should never be a pious fellowship where seemingly there are no sinners or sin is never mentioned. We want to feel welcoming to the daunted. And finally, what about the delicate, the weak? Help the weak. Support them. Literally, hold on to, like God does with us. And he pursues us, as we've just seen. And so there is a sense of, um, moving forward towards these people, not just waiting for them to come to us. You know, the weak, the delicate, as I'm calling them, may not even know what help they need. If we say to them, give us a call anytime, they'll never ring. They won't pick the phone up. And so we need to encourage them in that way. There's a sense of the prodigal son here, isn't there? The prodigal son goes so far away. That's my favorite parable in the, in the Bible. He, he goes so very, very far away. But when he finally turns, having gone to a far country, having not been eating, and probably having sickness in his body, there was no way he'd make it all the way back. But the father sees him such a long way away and runs to him. He pursues him. There's a sense of us 
needed to move towards the weak, take the initiative. Commentators describe these as those weak in knowledge, weak in faith, those not well able to perform their work nor bear up under their burdens. And so we should support them and help carry their burdens as Paul tells us to do in his letter to the Galatians. Often this is a case of helping in practical ways or even offering protection. And yes, the church is uniquely placed to and called to proclaim the soul-saving doctrines of the gospel, but we mustn't let our concerns about the social gospel, real concerns that they are, that uh, a sort of overemphasis on social, in, uh, uh, social issues and um, uh, a sort of mercy and justice type ministry would get in the way of the doctrines of grace and uh, the proclamation of the gospel. We mustn't let that get in the way of us offering a ministry of kindness to other people. Just one more military thing tonight. I don't know if you've seen the one about the SAS. You join the SAS. Again, I'm just pleased I'm back on my settee because there's no way. You know, they say, if you'd like to take part in the next series, no way. But what they often do is they'll get this enormously heavy kit, tank or something, in bits, and there's four of them, and they're miles from anywhere in the middle of the desert, and they've got to get from A to B. But they haven't just got to get the kit back. The whole team's got to get back. You're only as strong as your weakest member. And it's the sense of that here, that we need to, we are the body of Christ on earth. We need to be there for other people and to care in that way. And remember, we're all weak. We all need outside help. Jesus commends the poor in spirit, doesn't he? By definition, we are poor and needy. This is Jesus' love abounding to me and through me, through you, to others. This is that uh, that this is what's happening. And you know, as I came to prepare this message, and uh, I was challenged. I bumped into a chap I know twice recently. Never see him. Don't see him from one month to the next. I mean, we're all in this one room here. You know, there's people here that we know quite well that you probably haven't had a conversation with for six months. It's like that, isn't it? But here's somebody that I don't go to the same church with, I don't see on a regular basis anymore, and I've bumped into him twice recently. He's phoned me. Nobody rings us on our landline anymore. That's old hat. It's all WhatsApp and Facebook or whatever. And he's rung me on my landline, left a message. He's emailed me. Must get together. And, you know, to my shame, I sometimes think, oh, bit busy, uh, or whatever. And actually, as I've come to do this, I know the Lord is challenging me because it's all very well studying and talking about this. But this is the call to love, isn't it? And he needs a friend at the moment. And so that's what we need to do. I remember when I came to do the message in September, talking about comfort received, the Lord's presence. It's all very well saying that. But I felt... You know, in that week before that message, that week at work, I wanted to give it up. I felt intimidated. I just kept having hassle. It's the Lord challenging us to practice what we preach. Matthew Henry says, it's the grace of God that must strengthen and support the weak. But we should tell them of that grace and endeavor to minister it to them. And Calvin said that the weak should be treated with kindness and humanity. And once again, let me finish this point by focusing on our role here 
as the local church, the Christian community. We should hold on to the weak and not let them drift away, batten down the hatches. Don't you scratch your head. You know, we had a time recently, and we've had so much rain, so much rain, it's unbelievable. Our door in our garage swelled up so much because of the dampness, we can't even get it open. I have a friend from the church help us fix it the other day. So much rain. And yet, you sometimes, after a period of time like that, you get the water board or the water authority will say to you, uh, due to a shortage of water, don't use your hose pipes. And you think, there must be a leak in your, in your pipes. And of course, we don't want, you'll get the point of this in a minute, you're, we don't want to be a leaky bucket here. We don't want people coming in one door and going out the next. We want to be a sticky church, don't we? We want people to come in and everybody who comes in to feel at home and welcome, not daunted, and if they're weak, to support them, and so forth. So that is the challenge to us all here. And Paul ends our verse by exhorting us to be patient with all. I find my place. Uphold the weak, be patient with all. All of these cases, the unruly that doesn't want to turn yet, the daunted who's fear-bound, the weak that can't do much for him or herself, they are draining in all cases. Let's be frank about it. Bear with. Keep a lid on our temper. Be long-suffering. There's a long-term quality to this. How often... Are things resolved in quick time? Almost never. I know how long it's taken. You know, the sanctification process in my life hasn't taken three months or six months. It's not even taken three years or five years. It's over debt. It's a slow, it's a slow process, isn't it? And so we need to understand that that will be the case with other people. We need to persistently love all kinds of other people. Love is patient. That comes first, doesn't it, in 1 Corinthians 13. We're always to look to be constructive and merciful. And as I was preparing this message, I read that the last lesson that most, I don't know whether this is true or not, but this is what I read, that the last lesson most of us learn is to suffer fools gladly. And you know, when my dad died, 2015 I think it was, and my brother did the, my brother got on better with my dad than I did, and he did the um, tribute or the eulogy at, um, at, the, uh, at the funeral. And uh, I think this was a description. Uh, he certainly wasn't saying it in a negative sense. If anything, it was uh, said in a positive way. But he said, you know, yeah, Dad didn't suffer fools gladly. And I always used to think that he saw me as a bit of a fool, that he never revised his opinion. He wasn't a believer, but he couldn't sense that there was any change and he didn't revise his view, say first impressions count, you know, from when I was a teenager. But the thing is, the point of this is that people do change. If there is a, that seed of grace in them, over a period of time, ever so slowly, you're not born again with a degree in theology or anything like that, people do change. Bear with them, and you'll see that growth in grace. So, Disorderly, daunted, or delicate. We mentioned David's Tuesday test earlier. 
Well, William Hendrickson, the great, fairly modern commentator, is strong on this point too. And when he gives, in his sort of survey of the Bible, he gives little outlines on every book of the Bible. And one of the points he makes is that your exegesis needs to be accurate, so that your outline is accurate. Great. But he's just as strong on saying that your outline needs to be memorable. There's no point in knowing it's accurate if you can't remember what he said. And so anything like this, we had the three C's this morning, we released three C's this morning, weren't they? And we have our Tuesday test. Anything like that that helps, especially if you've got a mind like a sieve like I have, is gold dust. And so that's why we've said disorderly, daunted, or delicate. Haul over the coals the disorderly, hearten the daunted, help the delicate. And we should remember that we can all ourselves be all of these categories. You know, this isn't just about other people. No matter how strong a believer you are, there can be a moment where you go off the rails and start to turn away and walk away from the Lord and become unruly, disorderly. We can all feel through a season of trials, we can all feel fearful or daunted, and we can all feel weak at times. We're all fellow pilgrims, none of us immune from these categories. We don't admonish, encourage, or help other people from a position of superiority. So these are just tendencies rather than fixed types. We can all be all of them. And on the flip side of the coin, we have diverse gifts, as Charles Wesley's hymn has just reminded us. Some of us are good straight talkers, good for the disorderly. Some of us are good encouragers. Some of us are helpers. But we can learn from each other and vice versa. We're aiming to be a thriving and developing church, aren't we? And so we need to round out our gifts and graces. We need a bit of each because people are different. Cases are different. And as we've tried to highlight, I'll finish with this, we try to highlight the only form of counsel or encouragement or help that really can cope in all of these diverse, difficult, draining cases is one wholly focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagining that we can fix other people is a recipe for disaster and getting out of our depth. It's the Lord alone who can change us. And knowing and remembering this is such a help. We don't need to know all the answers. We don't even need to know what to say all the time. We can simply say, Lord, we need your help. The Thessalonians were thriving because, as we saw in chapter 1, of their faith towards God, verse 8, and their patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3.